Our text this morning comes from Acts chapter 12. I'm going to be turning in that direction. You'll find that on page 920 of your Pew Bible, if you happen to be using one of those. Let me mention again, if you don't have a Bible of your own that's in a translation you can make good sense of, then we welcome you to take one of ours. So please feel free to do that. Uh, We're in a series on the book of Acts, and as we've gone through the book of Acts week in and week out, we've been talking about the mission of God, the fact that God is on a mission. He's on a mission to us, bringing us the grace and forgiveness and life that come in Jesus. And from there, he's also on a mission through us as he uses his people to bring the love of Jesus to a world around us. It's mission to us and through us. We're going to see that mission... uh, is threatened once again here in Acts chapter 12. Let's, let's pray together and then we'll, we'll turn together and read this passage. Let's pray. Father, we uh, ask that you would open your word to us. Would you open us to your word? Would you use it to change us, to teach us, to transform us, that we might more and more see the world as it really is, that we might see your hand at work, that we might be transformed by the work of your Spirit. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts chapter 12. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword, and when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. When he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands, and the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know what was be, that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought that he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading in, into the city. It opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where there were many gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with their hand, with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. And then he departed and went to another place. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, 
He examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain. They asked for peace, because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, The voice of a god, and not a man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down, because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. Okay, one of the most colorful scenes uh, in the book of Acts, uh, especially as it ends there with, with King Herod. Uh, if you've been tracking with us through the book of Acts, about 10 or 11 years has passed, not since we began this series, though it might seem like that, um, but about 10 or 11 years has passed since the events of Acts chapter 10 and 11, where Peter brings the gospel to Cornelius and the, um, and the Gentiles, and the church begins to wrestle with the inclusion of the Gentiles. That was about 10 years before this. If you remember, in the early chapters of Acts, the, uh, the people of Jerusalem were very welcoming of the new Christians, and they, were, they, were, they enjoyed the favor of the people. But now, as we see in this passage, some of that has begun to change over the last decade. And so now, here we are asking again this question about the mission of God as it goes forward in the book of Acts and facing significant challenges, one of the most serious threats up to date as we go through the book of Acts. And it brings up the question, what happens when we look around so often and it seems like God's mission is being challenged and possibly even at times defeated? Where are we going to find hope? Well, I think what we're going to see here this morning is that the hope for God's people then is the hope is for us as God's people now, is that our hope would find that would come from looking to our king. From looking to our king. We're going to see three things about this. This morning, we're going to see, as we look at this passage, what it means to recognize our king. And then recognizing our king, what does it mean to rest in light of our king? And what does it mean to act in light of our king? Okay, so looking to our king. First, it begins with recognizing our king. There is a, there's a contest happening in this chapter of Acts. Okay, a question may be a better way of saying it that's being asked, who is really king? Who is king? Because there are a number that would vie for that title. And one of those we see in here is Herod. He's called King Herod. If you know New Testament, Herod, the name Herod uh, comes up often in the Gospels and earlier in the book of Acts. And almost every time you come to the name Herod, it's a different Herod. There was this large, expansive family of Herods in several generations. Herod the Great was the king of Judea and Jerusalem, Israel at the time that uh, when Jesus was born. Now, this Herod is Herod Agrippa I, and he is the grandson of Herod the Great. And there's been one or two Herods in between him and his grandfather, and he is the one who's at power, in power right now. And I point that out just to say that this Herod, who has come to power, has real power. This king has real power. He has political power. The region that he uh, commands is about the same size as it was when his grandfather commanded it, when, he, when his grandfather was king. But after his grandfather died, the Romans came in and divvied up uh, Palestine into uh, the governance of several different people. But Herod, this Herod, through his own political uh, finesse and cunning and ingratiating himself to the Romans, has been able to piece all those things back together and rules a fairly extensive territory. He's a king with political power. 
we see the extent of that political power even just in that last section of the passage where uh, the people of Tyre and Sidon, these two cities, come to him and are asking for peace. There's been conflict, and they know they're dependent on Herod and his opinion and his good graces for them to even have enough food to eat. He has huge political power. But he's also got judicial power. Look what he does at the beginning of this passage. He has James put to death, put to the sword, killed. He wields uh, judicial power over him. And he's got Peter thrown into prison, waiting to find out what his fate is going to be. When it mentions wielding the sword, this is a, a way of saying that he has the power of capital punishment. The courts are in his hands. So he has real power, just as there are people in our world who have real power as well. As we know, that power is not always used wisely and well. But that's not the end of the story with Herod, because he has real power, but it's not ultimate power. And Herod learns this lesson in a couple dramatic ways. First, when Peter is so dramatically rescued from uh, within his very grasp. Now, you know the stories. It's portrayed here, and if if you happen to have grown up in my generation and listened to a lot of Christian music in the early 80s, then you can hear Amy Grant's song, Angels Watching Over Me, playing in the back of your head right now. Uh, this morning, or excuse me, one morning this week, my wife Elizabeth and I were talking about this uh, text, and she burst out in song and sang me Amy Grant's song. I asked her if she wanted to come do the offertory this morning, and she, uh, she turned it down. Some of you, like me, can hear that song. As God comes and rescues Peter from this incredibly difficult situation. Now, you know, we look at this, and we're, okay, he's in prison, he's chained. Well, uh, Herod knew, he knew his Bible. He knew Acts chapter 5. He knew that in Acts 5, where it's recorded for us, that when the leaders of Jerusalem had tried to put Peter and the rest of the disciples into prison, that they were freed in the middle of the night. And so Herod doesn't take any chances. What does he do? He says that he has four squads of soldiers guarding him. Each squad would have had four people in it. And they would take three-hour shifts throughout the night. And he says that, you've, that Peter is sitting here chained between two of these guards, one on each side. Now, typical Roman practice would have been to chain you to one guard, but he, he knows Peter's reputation, and he's scared, and he doesn't want anything to happen. So Peter is sitting here in what effectively for him would have been maximum security prison. He is under guard. And says that this was the very night before Herod was going to call him uh, to come before the people and be put on trial. Now, we know what happened to James. We know what happened to Jesus when he was put on trial. And for Peter, as he is waiting for his day in court, he knows how this story is going to end. The same way it did for James. The same way it did for Jesus, who was also imprisoned over Passover, just as Peter is here. He had every reason to think, This is his last night as he's chained between these two guards waiting to come before the king. Well, Herod's power over him in this scene doesn't have the last say, does it? Because what happens? In the middle of the night, an angel appears in the middle of his cell. And he wakes Peter up. And the chains fell off. Apparently the other two guards are asleep at this point. The gates open up. He walks out. And he takes him into the city and then disappears. This amazing scene of rescue. Peter, in in the very clutches of death, he's rescued by his God. And Herod gets his first lesson that though he has real power, he doesn't have ultimate power. 
Herod learns this again in a vivid way. When What happens at the end of our story when Herod is entertaining the people from Tyre and Sidon who come to him with their request? What happens? He stands up and he gives this great speech to them. The Jewish historian Josephus also tells this story about uh, this very incident. He mentions that that Herod's clothes, these royal garments he was wearing, were, were woven out of silver thread. So you can imagine him gleaming in the sun as he stands up to give this speech to the people. And what do they say? This is not the voice of a man. This is the voice of a God. And you can just imagine Herod smiling. As he doesn't say anything to try to counter their words, but accepts the praise as it comes to him. And what happens? This Herod, who has real power but not ultimate power, God comes in and and strikes him down for his arrogance. And we see again that God is the one who has ultimate power here. We see that God is keeping Herod on a leash. As much trouble and as much persecution as he's causing for the church, we see here by the end that even Herod's life is held in God's hand. And I think what's interesting is we see Herod in the way God chooses to intervene in his life and intervene in the church. But we see God do that in some very dramatic ways. In the life of Peter, and then in this incident when he's giving the speech to the people. Sometimes it's easier for us to believe that God really is at work and he really is king when we see it in all the dramatic ways that he brings deliverance. But notice how in this passage, this is paired with the very beginning and the death of James. Both those things happen in the life of the early church. He comes and delivers Peter amazingly. And he allows James to be killed by Herod. And it just strikes me that for us as a church, too, it's very hard to look at circumstances and say, is God at work here or is he not? Because this passage tells us that both in the low moments and the high moments, that God is the one who is really in control and really in power behind the scenes here. And it brings up the question for us of what king are we looking to? Who is the one that has sway? Who is the one that has power for us? Who is the one who sets the agenda for us? And is it our own version of Herod? Or is it our king? our God, who shines out in this passage. But when we see, I think, that God is the one who's in control here, it it opens up two things for us. Because it tells us something about what it means then to rest in light of the king. And it tells us something about what it means to act in light of the king. Okay, Peter, the early church, looking to their king, they learned to rest and they learned to act. First, they learned how to rest. Look at this picture of Peter chained between these two guards, and what is he doing? He's sleeping. On the night before he knows he is likely going to be killed, he is he's asleep. And it just strikes me as this powerful picture of someone who is not worried. And it strikes me as a picture of Peter that is so unlike some of the pictures of him we've seen in the past. You remember what happens uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus is attacked by the crowd. What happens? Peter in his adrenaline rush, what does he do? Fight or flight? Well, he does both. Because the first thing he does is, as Jesus is mobbed, he takes out his sword and cuts off the ear of one of the people attacking Jesus until Jesus tells him to put up his sword. And then what does he do? He runs. 
along with the rest of the disciples, what happens when they see that they've been overpowered? They scatter and they abandon Jesus. We've seen Peter in the past when put to the test like this. When the adrenaline rushes, what do you do? You run or you fight. He does both. But what does he do here? He, he's asleep. He's at rest. And it stands in contrast, I think, for our often restless lives. Let me ask you this. If you, uh, maybe your picture of God is, is only one who sort of gives these uh, great commands and do nots from on high. Well, you know what the most repeated thing God says in Scripture, the most repeated do not? You know what he says do not do most often? Well, over a hundred times in the Bible, God tells his people, do not fear. Do not fear. When words do not come out of God's mouth, it is most often this exhortation to his people. Don't be afraid. Don't give in to fear. Don't let it control you. And Peter knows this command, and he's taken in this command. Now, that applies for us in the big, in, in the big picture items, right? For Peter, he's facing literal death. He's in prison. And there are times in our own lives when we are afraid of very dangerous things, even life-threatening things. But how does fear work, work out in even the smaller things of life? What about our worry? What about our constant anxiety? Some of us um, dabble in worry. Some of us have majored in it in our lives. But what is worry? Um, well, here's one definition. Worry is unbelief masquerading as concern. Unbelief masquerading as concern. You know what it's like in your life when something has begun to worry you? Why is that? What have we lost sight of? Well, in God's command to us of do not fear, it reminds us that worry is actually a sin. It's actually disobeying God's command to have faith, to rest, to believe. He speaks into our worry and says, do not fear. Because when we worry, when we are anxious, when we are caught in unbelief, we're essentially saying this, I don't trust you to take care of me, God. I don't believe that you care enough. I don't believe that you're powerful enough, but I do not trust you to take care of my life. And Herod lived an anxious, restless life, currying favor from the people he ruled. He puts James to death, and what does he see? That it pleased the people. So he goes and imprisons Peter too. And what happens when Peter is freed? It says that Herod begins to search for him. And when he can't find him, what does he do? He cross-examines the sentries and he puts them to death because they have failed him. And his worry and his anxiety drive him to exalt himself on this his last day before the people of Tyre and Sidon. What's he continually saying? Don't cross me, James, Peter, Tyre, Sidon. Don't fail me, guards in the prison. Don't look beyond me. I deserve your worship. Caught in the middle of his anxiety and fear. And we tend to be people who lead restless, anxious lives as well. Am I succeeding? And will it last? Will my health hold out? Will the right candidate win the presidential election? Will the economy be okay or will there be a recession? Will I finally find someone to marry? 
Will my marriage ever get better? Will my children turn out okay? Will I survive this semester? Will I make it into grad school? Will I be able to pay off my student loans? Will I be able to hold on for even one more week of my life as I know it? We tend to be anxious people. I found that with our students. I have this unfortunate gift to actually heighten anxiety in college students. I've noticed this. At the end of last semester, middle of exams, I would ask our students, so how many exams have you got left? And you could see their face fall as they had four and five more, and I just reminded them of it. Um, last week, I was asking our students, they've just started their semester, talked to a couple and said, yeah, I remember those days, those first few days of the semester when your professor hands you your syllabus and you look down and you think, I have not done one single thing on this yet, and I have to do it all before the end of the semester. And their face just fell. So I apologize for my gift of discouragement. But we are people. Whether you remember or are experiencing those kinds of fears as a student or all the fears that life brings you in the days both before and after that, we're people who tend to be caught in worry and fear. And anxiety for us can so easily become this metronome playing in the back of our heads. You know what that sounds like, the metronome? Keeping beat, whatever the song Whatever is playing in the back of our heads, what? There's always this constant drumbeat of anxiety and of restlessness and for fear for many of us. And so this text brings up the question, how can we break out of this? How can we silence the anxiety? How can we finally rest? Well, what we see in Peter is that rest comes from looking to our king. Because Peter knows, after many hard-won lessons with Jesus, that his life is safe in Jesus. That whatever else happens to him, that he has been given the favor of God, and that that has become the defining reality of his life. And that even the next day, if he is killed by the sword, that he follows a Lord who is killed by the authorities as well, but who is raised on the third day. And he follows a God who has promised him that one day he will be raised as well and that evil will not have the final victory. In the words of uh, Paul in Romans 8, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. What is the promise here? It's not that distress and persecution and famine, danger, in the case of Peter, the sword. The promise is not that those things will not come. But the promise is that those things will not have the final say. And they cannot separate us from our God. As Peter sits in this prison over Passover, surely he remembered Jesus sitting in prison over Passover as he is hauled, about to be hauled before a trial the next day. Peter is, he remembers his Lord Jesus who was also hauled before a tribunal, tried for his life. As Peter faces the possibility of his death, he remembers Jesus who went to the certainty of his death. 
But again, he remembers this Jesus for whom death was not the final word. And he looks to Jesus and sees not only an example of courage in the midst of suffering, but a promise from God that death does not have the final say because Jesus himself was raised from the dead. What did did Peter know? That whatever happens this next day, what I value most is secure. They can take my life. They can take all I have. But they cannot rip me away from Jesus. Now that begs a question for us. That only becomes of comfort to us if Jesus really is the central thing for us. If knowing in Him and resting in Him has become the center of our life, then there's a certain relativity to everything else in our life. Because that thing that stands at the center cannot be taken away. And everything else can be. And for those who trust in Jesus, when those things are ripped away, as they often are in this life, it will be hard, and it will bring pain, but it will not undo you. Because as Peter remembers here, as he is asleep between these two guards, that he has been united to Jesus, and nothing can change that. So I'd encourage us maybe this week not only to think about this command that God gives us throughout Scripture of do not fear, but in the middle of your very real struggles and your very real anxieties this week and in the middle of mine, that maybe we'd actually be able to remember a picture, that we would be able to see this picture of Peter living this out, asleep, chained between these two guards, trusting in his God to care for him, whatever happens next. But in this, we don't only see how to rest in light of Jesus. We also see how to act in light of Jesus. Because while Peter is in prison, what is the church doing? Look at verse 5. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. While Peter is in prison, what is the church doing? They're praying. It talks about earnest prayer here. The one other time in the Bible where it's referred to as earnest prayer, where that word earnest is used, uh, is at the end of uh, the Gospel of Luke, where Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's praying earnestly about what's about to happen to him. And he's sweating drops of blood as he comes before his father on the eve of his own death. Not simply because he was going to die a physically painful death, but he was going to suffer the weight of our sin and the separation from God that we deserve. He was going to take that on, and he prays earnestly. And here we've got the church praying earnestly for Peter. For Peter. Now, it doesn't tell us that we shouldn't be active in life. It doesn't tell us that we shouldn't do all that we can to fight injustice and to work towards the mission of God. But it does remind us of something, that fundamentally we are powerless people. Okay, we don't really believe that. And oftentimes it takes serious reminders in our life to, to remind us of that, that we really can't do the most important things in our lives. If you're a parent, there are days when you realize that you, you just can't change your children's hearts. You can't guarantee your own good and lasting health. Those of us that have gotten some version of the flu this winter, you know you can be healthy and strong one day, and it doesn't take much for that all to be gone. 
Even when we're strong, we're only a step away. Some people eat bacon and eggs every morning of their life. They smoke their entire adult life. And they still live to be 98. And others of us eat organic foods. We jog five times a week. And some people still die in their mid-30s. That we are fundamentally powerless people. And in this situation for the church, they were reminded of that because they were in a situation where there was nothing they could even try to do. They had no political influence, no political clout. They weren't friends of Herod's. They couldn't come in and ask him to have mercy. They couldn't stage a rescue operation to bust him out of jail in the middle of the night. The church knew that they were powerless people, and so what do they do? They do the thing that powerless people do. They pray. I think this passage reminds us that we too are fundamentally powerless people. And what if followers of the king who trust that Jesus really is in charge, not Herod? What do people following Jesus do? How do they act? They begin with prayer. They remember they are powerless. And rather than running from that, rather than masquerading that, rather than resenting that, they turn to the one who has power, their true king. It's heartening to me when I see the reaction of these disciples when uh, Peter shows up at the door. Because there they are. They're in the middle of the night. They're praying earnestly for him. And Peter shows up at the door and they say, oh, it can't be him. You've just been praying for this. Peter shows up and they're still surprised that they still have capacity to be amazed by the powerful working of God. Would we be people that are just like that? Earnest in prayer, faithful to pray. And Would we have our eyes open to see God surprisingly answer our prayers? And Would we be a people who at the same time learn to rest? That because God is king, we don't have to be anxious. We don't have to let worry control our lives. We can come and no rest in the middle of hardship because we have a God who is the one who is in control. Philippians chapter 4 kind of ties both these ideas together. Listen to what Paul says here. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. May we be people who are not anxious, but people who, are, who pray. May we be people who are amazed to see our King at work in us and around us for His glory and our good. Let's pray. Father, we do pray that prayer more and more would become our reflex that we would turn to you. We pray that we would be people who know that you are our king. Lord, you know how many other things in our life claim that spot for us. Would you free us from their power that we might bow the knee only to you, our king. Would you give us rest? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.